Generally, I think it's bad form for a speaker to begin with apologies. But that's what I'm going to do this morning. I actually have two apologies to make. One is this passage was actually assigned to Brian, and he presented um, his outline and his preliminary work to us some weeks ago, not knowing that uh, something was going to come up that was going to take him out of town, and so it fell to me uh, to deliver this passage. And so my apology is, I don't quite have the flair that Brian has. I certainly don't have Brian's volume, um, and I don't have the coordination or the energy to come running up the stage without risking making a real buffoon of myself. The second apology, and this one will give you a reason to join me in prayer in just a minute. My sermon notes are 27 pages long. So with that, let me read the text, and then uh, let's pray together. And today we're looking in chapter 14 at verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The main point today, if you are keeping notes, is this. Following Jesus will cost you the world. The question you must answer, is he worth it? 
So the text begins with the statement, now great crowds accompanied him. These words of Jesus echo down the corridors of time to strike our ears this very Sunday morning. The bodies of the people that formed those great crowds that were following Jesus as he made his way toward Jerusalem are dust today. Their names are long forgotten by history. They're living souls, just like you and me, but they're in the grave. Isaiah 40, since we're enjoying Isaiah this morning, Isaiah 40, verses 6 or 8 says, A voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. These crowds, like so much grass, have withered and faded, as we will too if the Lord tarries. But the words of Jesus endure. This morning, his word falls on our ears. How will we hear it? May it please God to give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace what Jesus intended to be heard. And may we be transformed as he gives us understanding. Father, pray that you would do exactly that this morning, uh, that we know that we are but a moment and we know that the days that you have given us are days that matter for eternity. So, Father, I pray that today, that as we hear the very words of Jesus spoken to those just like us who followed him, that his ears would penetrate our culture our thoughts, our experiences, our prejudices, our biases, and even the hardness of our hearts, and cause us to consider for a moment what it means to follow him, to be his disciple, and then stir us today, evoke in us a certainty that says, yes, yes, following Jesus is worth everything. So Jesus turned to this great crowd that was following him and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Point one. Jesus calls us to a higher love. When you hear the word family, what emotions does the word evoke in you? For some, the thought of family evokes happy memories. They think of weddings and births and vacations and gatherings and sporting events and laughter, security, and safety. Sadly for others, the word provokes thoughts of pain and strife, anger, lies, betrayal, mistrust, abuse, abandonment, and suffering. Whether our emotions connected to 
family are precious or whether they're terrible, family is something we all desire. If we have a good, strong family, we long to be with them. And if we don't, we long for change or we long to become part of a better, happier, healthier family. Family was created by God. Genesis tells us that God determined it was not good for Adam to be alone, so God made him a family and declared that it was good. Jesus is not now telling us that family is bad. That would be contrary to the truth. Jesus is telling us that in this fallen world, family cannot be our highest allegiance. Love for family cannot be our greatest love or where our highest loyalties reside. Jesus is telling us that if we cling to family for rescue in this dying kingdom, we're not going to make it. It is through the work that Jesus would accomplish on the cross that we would be adopted into a new family. John 1.12, he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his own son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Ephesians 1, 5 through 6. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. In the beloved. When we make our love for Christ our highest love, even greater than our love for parents, spouse, and yes, even children, we love them better, for we love them with the love of Christ. If love of family is our highest love, the most we can offer them is to reflect the love they give to us back to them. But when Jesus is our highest love, 
we can lavish a better, pure love on our parents, spouses, children. When Jesus is our greatest love, we can love them with the holy, pure love of Christ. Loving Jesus above all else, loving him so much that by comparison, our affections for everyone else looks like hate, does not stop us from loving others. It equips us to love others as Christ loves them. If we do not love others as Christ loves them, we are not his disciples. We must love Jesus first and foremost to truly love others. Now, the thing I most treasure about my wife, and there are many, many things I treasure about her, is that she loves Jesus first and foremost and more than she loves me. All that I love about her is rooted in her abiding, constant love of Jesus. Her love for Christ is a gift to me. When Jesus becomes your first love, your capacity to love others is limitless. Worthy disciples love Jesus so completely that his love flows through them to others, even our enemies. The first question that you have to consider in light of Jesus' words is this. Is Jesus today your highest and truest love? Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Point two. When Jesus says, follow me, the road leads to a cross. At this point in Luke's gospel account, Jesus has already set his eyes firmly on Jerusalem. And he has already told his disciples that he will suffer and he will die there. For Jesus and for the Christian, every road leads to Calvary. We cannot escape the cross. Let us not trivialize what it means to bear our cross. Bearing a cross does not mean dealing with a flat tire, or rain on your vacation, or not getting enough sleep because a baby was fussy all night, or not getting the promotion you wanted. The cross is a symbol of rejection, of humiliation, and excruciating pain. The Romans used the cross to punish those who broke their laws. It was a horrendous, horrendous way to die. The condemned were put on public display for all the world to see their shame and their suffering. There was no reprieve from death once a person was nailed to a cross. There is no ambiguity about the cross. And Jesus knew this. 
And still, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and the cross that awaited him. He carried his cross toward Calvary, beaten and rejected. He suffered the shame and humiliation of being stripped naked before his enemies and being put on display for them to watch and mock him as he suffered the excruciating mortal pain and agony of crucifixion. But the cross did not catch Jesus by surprise. He knew that it was a necessary part of accomplishing his Father's will. He did not contrive excuses. He did not rationalize his way out of suffering. He did not call down fire from heaven upon his tormentors. Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. He knew that the Father loved fallen people, people, just like you and me, so much that he chose to send his son to that cross so that we might not perish, but have everlasting life. Because of the cross, we can live in God's kingdom forever because Jesus willingly took up his cross. Are you willing to suffer rejection, humiliation, and pain for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to walk over, bend down, and place a cruel cross on your shoulders to accomplish the Father's will in your life? The answer to that question is found in our day-to-day -day choices. How do we respond when those around us find the gospel ridiculous? Do we back off in fear, worrying that we will incur their rejection? If speaking of our faith in God will cause humiliating ridicule from others, do we clam up? If we are facing the threat of real pain, real suffering, real torment because of Christ, do we run? As impossible as it seems, Jesus tells us that his true disciples choose to pick up their crosses and follow after him. Where Jesus leads, we must follow. Jesus' road led him to the cross, and there we must choose to willingly follow him. We must embrace our cross. Verse 28 through 31. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Point three. God counted the cost to redeem you. Then he paid it. 
God is not building a tower. God is building a kingdom. And his kingdom will be just. His kingdom will be a kingdom of peace. His kingdom cannot be overthrown. His kingdom is eternal, and it will be established right here on earth. But this earth has fallen. It's a sinful place. It's a place of constant sorrow. Wickedness abounds. We are a world full of hatred and strife. We have blood on our hands. Surely, surely, this cannot be where the kingdom of God will exist. Surely man is not worthy to live in a holy kingdom. And that's true. We're not worthy. We're not worthy to be citizens of such a kingdom. We are sin-stained, we're condemned, and powerless against death. But God counted the cost of building a holy kingdom. The cost was sending his son to redeem us with his words, his life, his broken body, and his spilled blood, with his victory over death and the grave. God counted the cost, and he paid the cost. There will not be one single aspect of his kingdom that will be incomplete or missing because God failed to satisfy the cost. Jesus was the earnest payment for a redeemed people. He paid the price and he holds the deed to the kingdom of heaven in his hands. And he who holds the eternal kingdom The king, who is full of compassion, grace, mercy, and love, stands at the gate of that glorious kingdom and calls sinners like you and like me to come to him. Will you enter? Can you see that you cannot drag allegiance to this wrecked, wicked kingdom that we live in today into his To gain his kingdom, to dwell forever under the loving rule of the king of mercy and grace, we must let go of our love for this world and love only him. That is the cost of belonging to Jesus. The tower you desire to build will stand as a monument to your willingness to count the cost, then satisfy it. Will the tower of your life be complete or will it be a monument to one who did not count the cost, one who did not meet the payment? Do not let your life be an example of folly. Count the cost. Consider what you will gain in the end and pay the price of losing the fading riches of this world to gain an imperishable inheritance in Christ. Verses 31 and 32. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? 
And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Point four, your kingdom will not prevail over Jesus' kingdom. Make peace with him today. There have been many kings on this earth. Some have amassed great wealth, some great power. Some treated their subjects well, and some were exceedingly wicked. Each king faced the threat of every other king. Each king had a kingdom, and the neighboring kingdoms were often in conflict with him. When kingdoms clashed, there was war. Kingdoms came and went as some kings prevailed and other kings were defeated. Jesus came into this world and began to proclaim a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. It is to be an everlasting kingdom, and it is at war with every kingdom that rejects God. Jesus is the king of this kingdom, and he has declared war. Is Jesus just another power-hungry ruler? No, he is nothing like any king who has ever sat on a throne. Jesus is the king who created all things. He is the king who holds this universe together with the power of his might. Do you doubt this? Listen to what God's word states about this king in Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, in everything, he, Jesus, might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus, God reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is a king at war. He has declared war on all the kingdoms that stand against the kingdom of God. These are kingdoms that we can see in some cases and kingdoms that are invisible to us. Some of these are kingdoms that are mighty and some are kingdoms that are small. He is at war with them all, including the kingdom of your heart. Will you do battle with Jesus? Do you hope to win against the king who created you, the king whose very word sustains you? 
I hope you and I are wise enough to seek terms of peace with King Jesus. His terms of peace are not cruel. They're loving, they're merciful, and they're kind. Jesus asks us to stop our striving and to come to him and find rest. He seeks not to kill us, but to give us life. He does not seek to rob from us, but to give us riches in his kingdom and an inheritance with him. He does not seek to humiliate us and defeat, but to raise us up and to seat us with him in heavenly places. So, the question we face is, do we make war with this king, or do we make peace with this king? Verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has can not be my disciple. Point five. We cannot cling to the things of this world and Jesus at the same time. Man was created for work. The specific work man was created to do was to establish God's kingdom on this earth, starting from a garden that God had planted in the midst of a place called Eden, and then to expand that garden to the rest of the earth. Genesis 1, 26 and 20 through 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, let them have rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was the work we were created to do. Sin interrupted that mandate. All that man was created to do was corrupted, confused, and convoluted by sin. Man's labor was no longer the joyful labor of seeing God's image and God's rule and God's reign being spread over all of creation. Adam, after he sinned, now had to labor just to feed himself. We, sitting here today, 
are the descendants of Adam. We live in the world that fell when he sinned. And we are sinners. We're born with the very nature of our father, Adam. We are born with the sin nature. We labor in this world not to establish God's rule, but for our own purposes. We labor in this world to feed ourselves. And if we're fortunate enough to be rewarded with more than we need to survive, we then amass the things of this world to ourselves. Because we labor for the things we acquire, we tend to attach our emotions and our self-worth to those things. We dream of beautiful houses and gardens, a wonderful wardrobe, nice cars. We feel a rush of pleasing feelings when we buy something new. When the good feelings of the last thing we bought wear off, we begin to seek for the next new thing. We accumulate cars and houses, clothes, toys, experience, stuff, until we feel compelled to have yard sales or pack it all up and donate it to charity because we're drowning in our stuff. If we have the means, we will suffocate ourselves with the things of this world. With each new thing we own, we lose another piece of our freedom and we devote another piece of our heart to this world. Everything we possess possesses us in return. Jesus modeled a different way to live. He did not cherish what this world could offer. He came to redeem and to reclaim this fallen world. He did not let the world distract him from doing the Father's will, and he did not cling to anything that would hinder him from his purpose. And Jesus did not mince his words. If we cling to the things we have, we cannot be his disciple. And the question we must answer for ourselves this morning is, what do I cling to that is more valuable to me than Jesus? When we ask ourselves that question, in sincerity, we should pay close attention to the answer that rises in our hearts. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either to the soil or to the manure pile. It is thrown away. Point six. That which does not function according to its purpose is discarded. Have you ever tried to work with a tool uh, that simply wouldn't function. You have some work to do. It requires a tool, and no matter what you do, the tool won't do what it's meant to do. What you do with that tool? 
America's landfills contain can openers, hair dryers, lawnmowers, bicycles, weed trimmers, toasters, and exercise equipment, all kinds of things that did not do what we expected them to do. Disciples are made for a reason. It takes time and energy to make a disciple. The time and energy given to the disciple has an aim. It has a goal. It has a purpose. Christ calls people to become disciples. It's a high calling. It's a costly calling. It's a calling that upon completion yields rewards beyond our imagination. The promise of true discipleship is not a cash prize, a trophy, a citation, or a gold medal. What awaits the true disciple at the end of his journey of choosing Christ above all else, the reward is Christ himself. Jesus told the crowds what it meant to follow him. He told them the truth. Following Jesus puts you on a journey that led to Calvary. Some who followed him suffered greatly, and some fell away when following him began to cost them. Which of these two kinds of people looks like salt, and which looks like salt that has lost its saltiness? Jesus says, that as his disciples, if we have lost our saltiness, if we no longer serve the purpose to which we are called, we are worthless. True discipleship begins in the heart. If our hearts are set on Jesus alone, then we will turn to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, when life is difficult. If Christ alone reigns in our hearts and minds, then we are confident that he is trustworthy and he is always with us. He does not abandon us when trials come, but comforts, strengthens, encourages, and cares for us. When our trust, hope, and confidence is in Jesus alone, we are salt. Matthew 5.13 calls us the salt of this earth. So as we consider these things this morning, let's consider Jesus. And who does the word of God say this Jesus is? It says that he's the Lord of Lords, that he's the King of Kings. He's the Prince of Peace, the Son of David, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Messiah of Israel, the last Adam, the Anointed One, the Bridegroom, the Bright and Morning Star, the Captain of our salvation, the Bread and the Life, the Captain of the Host of the Lord, the Chief Cornerstone, the Christ, the Consolation of Israel, the Creator, the day spring from on high. He is our deliverer. He is Emmanuel, the eternal king, the one who is faithful and true, the alpha and the omega, the good shepherd, the heir of all things, 
the horn of salvation. He's the just one, the lawgiver, the light of the world, the lion of Judah, the living bread, the Lord of glory, the Lord of our righteousness, our Passover, the prince of life, the rock, our redeemer, the son of righteousness, the true bread, the vine, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the word of life, the word of God, the one who was and is and is to come, our Lord and our God. His name is Jesus, and he is your reward if you hear and heed his call and cast away all that would keep you from him and cherish him above all else. Jesus is true to his word. He never breaks a promise. When he speaks, he speaks the truth. He tells us that to follow him is costly. We must turn away in obedience from all that would keep us from him. He calls us from death to life, but our journey will be demanding. Jesus requires we let go of the things we love more than him. Jesus demands our complete, uncompromised love. He will not negotiate for less. Is he worth it? Is he deserving of your devotion, your obedience, your complete and total love? Is he worthy of this? He is. He is. He is. And our Lord himself says to you this morning in verse 35, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen.